Welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. Our guest is Samuel Close Hunicky. Samuel Close Hunicky is an assistant professor of history at George Mason University. He is a historian of modern Europe with a focus on the social and political history of the 19th and 20th century Germany. He is broadly interested in how everyday life intersects with and shapes the relationships between citizens and states. His research foci include the history of gender and sexuality, legal history, and the history of democracy. He received a BA summa cum laude in German and mathematics from Amherst College, a Master's of Science with distinction in applicable mathematics from the London School of Economics, and a PhD in history from Stanford University. His new book, States of Liberation, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany, will be published March 22nd by the University of Toronto Press. And now on to the show. Uh, so I'm Samuel Hunicke. I'm a historian of modern Germany. I am an assistant professor at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, and I live in Washington, DC. Um, I recently wrote a book called States of Liberation, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany, which looks at gay persecution and liberation across the entire span of the Cold War in both East and West Germany. Um, and I'm broadly interested in um, queer history, legal history, the history of democracy, and I, again, mostly research uh, Germany in the 20th century. Yeah, so what is your background with Germany? Because I've only visited very briefly, um, so I'm not I'm not real familiar with it. Uh, tell me about your relationship with Germany and, and for people that have never been to Germany, I guess, if you whatever you could say about that. Yeah, um, so I first went to Germany actually when I was nine years old. Um, my parents were living over there for a few months and so I, I went with them. Um, that's when I started learning German. We were in Bonn, which was the capital at the time. It was in the late 90s. Um, it was a really weird, wonderful experience. Um, when we moved back to the States after that, I kept learning German. Um, and sort of around that time when I was younger, I also became really fascinated with history in general. And so those two interests sort of merged over the course of my education. Uh, I went to Amherst College for my bachelor's degree and I studied um, German and history while I was there. Um, I, was, I was a German major and I actually wrote my BA thesis on um, the author Klaus Mann, who was the son of Thomas Mann, the, the, no, the Nobel Prize uh, laureate. Um, and then I wound up going to Stanford to get a PhD in history. Um, and I specialized in modern European history while I was there, modern Germany within that. Uh, and sort of over the course of my six years there, I read a lot more in queer history specifically and, um, and became a lot more sort of interested in, in the history of sexuality, generally speaking. Um, across the course of my education, I've lived in Germany a couple of other times. I lived in Heidelberg when I was an undergrad, which is this beautiful university town in Southwest Germany. Um, there's a major American military base there. Um, and then I've also lived in Berlin. That's where I did a lot of the research for my book that just came out. Um, it's a it's a wonderful country. It's it's obviously very different in a lot of ways from the U.S. Berlin in particular. Uh, you can still feel the scars from the Second World War in a lot of ways, and and from the Cold War. Um, 
so anyway, I'm, I'm happy to t- talk more about uh, sort of the experience of living in Germany, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, I was only there very briefly. I thought it was a lovely country. Everyone there, I, I, I don't, it's, it almost seems like just because it's a Germanic language, English isn't that different. And I could, I feel like I could almost speak German just by guessing sometimes. I mean, I don't mean to be too presumptuous because obviously if somebody's tried to speak German to me right now, I couldn't exactly you know what i mean but like mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. i remember there was like a glass a, a box of uh just glasses like water glasses and on the outside it said water glass and then i'm like oh come on i can guess that <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it has a lot of similarities um honestly the thing that really trips people up um is the grammar it has a okay. much more sort of it has a very strange grammatical structure to an english speaker mm-hmm uh, right. But yeah, lots of lots of similar words like, yeah, water is Vasa. So very similar. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's really fascinating. The the book, uh, what you cover in this book. And um, I wanted to start kind of at the beginning, though, with uh, pre-war, at least, uh, you know, pre-World War Two, I guess, Germany. Um, that was a very different place, uh, obviously, from what it became. But uh, tell us a little bit about the origins and kind of where you start the story of of this. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I um, before World War One, Germany um, was in many ways seen as a sort of leader in culture and higher education, um, and this continued after World War World War One. Uh, the Weimar period of the 1920s was this sort of efflorescence of culture. It was really um, a remarkable place to be. This is when you have some of the most iconic early films. You have um, actresses like Marlena Dietrich and Lotte Lenya. You have artists like um, Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill. Um, you have novelists. You have uh, sort of the origins of expressionism. You have um, new artistic forms. You have the Bauhaus. Uh, and part of this sort of ferment, this cultural ferment, uh, was the first homosexual rights movement in modern history. And this really got its start in the late 19th century. One of the uh, most significant figures in this movement was Magnus Hirschfeld. He was a doctor uh, from Northern Germany, uh, and he became involved in campaigning against the sodomy law in Imperial Germany in the late 19th century. Uh, and he also became very interested in researching um, sexual identities and sexual behaviors. And so thanks to him and a lot of other of his contemporaries, a lot of uh, many other activists from this era, uh, the first sort of um, thing that we might think of as a gay rights movement coalesced in the 1920s. And that was completely wiped out by the Nazis uh, when they took power in 1933. Most of the Nazis were incredibly opposed to um, queerness of any shape or form. Um, They were particularly hostile. uh, Well, they were hostile to both gay men and lesbians. Um, Around 10,000 gay men were sent to concentration camps where they wore uh, the now infamous symbol of the pink triangle, uh, which then in later years and later decades became a symbol of gay liberation. Um, lesbian women were also persecuted in a, a variety of ways. So you have this incredible change, a sort of, you know, uh, almost a small golden age followed by just catastrophe for Germany's queer populations in the first half of the 20th century. Mm, yeah, right. And uh, there's so much that you said there that, of course, I want to ask you about. <laughs> uh, yeah. But um, talk a little bit about, let's get into, because I, 
was not really aware of this uh paragraph or section 175 and subsection a and uh mm -hmm. you know get into the weeds a little bit because i do think that is a important part and i just have to say i'm astounded i know this has to be true for other laws too but i'm astounded that nazi era laws are allowed to stand in non-nazi germany it's just mm -hmm. it's unthinkable mm -hmm. like it's like it, this is illegitimate like the, we've already said that this is not you know the way it's mm -hmm. gonna be mm -hmm. maybe if this is you still want to say that make a new law you know what i mean but like it's like they're still like no nah, it looks good <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> no it's it's wild and and there's still some of these remnants um the german parliament uh was actually um just recently debating uh ending or, or repealing a nazi era law um that dictated um abortion service mm. um wow. so things like that the uh the treaty that governs relations between the vatican and germany was a treaty negotiated by the nazis and it's still in force so you have all these mm. weird lingering remnants and and one of them as you point out is paragraph 175 it's a paragraph of the german criminal code and it first comes into being when germany first becomes a state in 1871 at the end of the 19th century and it at the time uh, only bans penetrative sex between men. And as a result of that, it's actually quite hard to win convictions in court because the prosecutor sort of has to get into all this mucky detail to actually prove that penetration occurred. And if the various parties say, no, it didn't, it's very hard to, to prove that it did. Uh, that changes under the Nazis. In 1935, they passed this new version of paragraph 175 that makes any uh, conduct that can be construed as homosexual in nature illegal. And on top of that, they add this other law called paragraph 175 subsection A that creates all these classes of um, sort of qualified homosexuality. So one of them has to do with the so-called seduction of youth. So this notion um, that gay men seduce young sort of men, um, teenagers into being homosexual. Uh, and this law was meant to sort of put a particularly harsh penalty on on that. It also puts a particularly harsh penalty uh, on male prostitution. So they create these two laws that really ramp up uh, both the number of acts that are criminalized and also the types of penalties that can be um, meted out to people convicted under these laws. And as a result of that, you go from having fewer than a thousand convictions per year under the law to around 50,000 convictions over 12 years. Mm. So it just, it, it's a huge wave of persecution, especially in the mid to late 1930s. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and as you say, when the, the post-war era rolls around, the allied powers are left with these laws and they're left sort of deciding, well, what do we do with them? And it wasn't at all clear you know, what they would decide. And so in East Germany, actually, the the communist government decided to ditch the Nazi era law and go back to the previous version of the law. And they did that because they had long had at least, um, they'd at least paid lip service to the notion of repealing this law. And so there were sort of progressive voices within that government that wanted to do away with it. In West Germany, on the other hand, they kept the law for another 20 years. So from 1949 to 1969, West Germany was still prosecuting queer men under this law that the Nazis had created. Uh, and between um, 1949 and 1969, you have 
uh, over 50,000 men who are convicted in West Germany. Mm. Yes. Again, so much I want to talk about with what you just <laughs> said, but to go back just a little bit again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about, because this is a, it's a reoccurring theme that I think is worth uh, exploring uh, in your book here. So you have, okay, let's talk about the night of the long knives. Mm-hmm. It's a very important part of this whole mentality because the fear seems to be that these uh, gay men are going to get together in these clubs and they're going to like secretly wield power, which on the one hand, when I read that, I'm like, of course, when you ostracize a group from society and say, you can't be open about who you are, of course, they're going to form, you know, like secret clubs. Right. I mean, what else do you expect <laughs> people to do? Like people are going li- life finds a way as they say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, of course uh, that would be happening, but it's also interesting vis-a-vis the, what you spoke about or wrote about also with the uh, lesbians versus gays in that they didn't seem quite as concerned about lesbians for a whole host of reasons. But anyway, that's, that's a yep. lot to get into, but just wherever you want to start with that. Yeah, no. So um, for, for folks who maybe haven't heard of the Night of Long Knives before, uh, this takes place in the summer of 1934, uh, a little over a year after Hitler comes to power. And basically, it is a huge purge of various internal enemies. Um, and so the, the primary target is Ernst Röhm, who is the head of the Nazi paramilitary organization, the Stormtroopers. These, also known as the SA, these are the people who wear brown shirts. It's why uh, brown is the color associated with Nazism. And essentially, they were the most Uh, sort of radical, um, also the most sort of working class uh, wing of the party. Uh, And they, after the Nazis took power, increasingly became sort of an embarrassment to the party leadership. And there were various components to this in some areas around economic policy. They really wanted a much more radical policy. Um, They were also, the stormtroopers were a massive organization, millions of members, and the German military felt threatened by this massive paramilitary force. And so for all of these reasons, Hitler eventually decides to do away with Röhm and the other uh, leadership of the SA. And so he has them executed. There are various other politicians who get sort of swept up in this purge. Um, But after the fact, Hitler sort of invents this reason for it by saying that Röhm, who was a gay man, um, it was a fairly well-known fact that he was a gay man. uh, And in fact, there had been a scandal in the last years of the Weimar Republic around his homosexuality. Mm. But Hitler then goes to, um, you know, the leadership, he goes to uh, the, the parliament, which at this point only has Nazi members in it, and essentially says Röhm, was gathering this clique of gay conspirators around him, and they were planning to launch a coup against me and against the Nazi leadership. So that's where you get this myth um, that sort of propagates in the Nazi era that gay men not only are going out and seducing youth into a homosexual lifestyle, but they also have a political agenda behind that, right? They want to um, create these conspiracies and these cliques, these secret groups, uh, and use that to destabilize the government, destabilize society. And of course, it it does seem sort of ridiculous to us now or sort of ludicrous, but this was deadly serious at the time. Mm. Um, Even though it starts as this sort of excuse for a purge, it takes on a life of its own. And it really carries on 
down past the Nazi era. It's something that I found characterized how West Germans, how the West German government, West German politicians talked about homosexuality and, and about gay men. And one, one other thing that you mentioned is the, the sort of side of lesbians. Um, in the Nazi era, women were largely excluded from public life. Uh, Nazi ideology saw women primarily as mothers and as mm -hmm. wives. And so they, you know, weren't supposed to have leadership positions. They weren't supposed to have jobs. They weren't, you know, supposed to have a public profile. And because of that, they didn't believe that lesbians could or would pose the same threat to uh, public safety or political stability that they feared gay men might. Um, however, that, that said, there is the caveat that I, I've done a fair amount of research on um, lesbian women in the Nazi period. And one thing I found is that when you have women who did have jobs, did have careers, did have some sort of public facing profile, the same language can creep into how Nazis think about them, especially if they're denounced or wind up in some sort of police proceeding or, or uh, trial. Oftentimes these fears around seduction and around click building do actually start cropping up for lesbian women who have that sort of a a public profile. Talk about, you know, the differences between East Germany and West Germany. And it is interesting because we have one behind the Iron Curtain, if you will, and then the other in the free world, quote unquote. But it's kind of interesting to compare the two uh, with each other. What differences can you kind of illustrate for us? Yeah. And, and similarities, I, mean, I guess, too. But Yeah. I mean, that's really sort of the question at the heart of the book and, and at the heart of my research. Um, so basically, when I went into this research project, when I first went to Berlin and started looking at archives, I really had that sort of Cold War stereotype in mind, right? The free West and the sort of repressed authoritarian East. And what I really found quite quickly was that that, in a lot of ways, didn't really hold up. And so in the early Cold War period in the 1950s and 1960s, as I've already mentioned, you have uh, West Germany, which keeps this Nazi era law and uses it to convict over 50,000 men. Mm. In the East, they revert to this much more lenient law uh, from the 1920s. And then in the, in the late 1950s, they more or less stop using it to prosecute consensual sexual acts between adult men. And so as a result of that, we don't have complete statistics for East Germany, but um, the per capita conviction rate in East Germany was in much, much lower um, than it was in West Germany. Mm. And, and so uh, that was one area where it just immediately doesn't sort of fit this narrative of there being greater repression in East Germany. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that everything was sort of wonderful and tolerant and so forth. In East Germany, you still have a lot of social stigma. Um, you do still have persecution of gay men who occupy positions of privilege. So uh, party members, uh, people who are in the army or the secret police, um, they, if they're discovered to be gay, will usually be fired or, or thrown out of the party. So you do still have elements of persecution and elements of intolerance in both societies. And so actually when I drilled down and was looking for evidence of what daily life looked like for queer people in both Germanys, um, in the 1950s and 1960s, it actually looks pretty similar. 
you actually have, you know, um, men are largely forced to go cruising in public places to look for sex or to look for partners. So they're going to public baths, they're going to forests, they're going to train stations, they're going to public toilets, and so on and so forth. And Mm -hmm. so that's taking place on both sides of the wall. You do have some um, bars that are known to cater to queer clientele, but they have to deal with frequent raids from the police. Um, so, so you do have these two very different legal apparatuses and, and sort of um, regimes in the two Germanys. But in terms of daily life, there actually is a lot of similarity between the two. Yeah. Um, going back to the legal aspect, though, mm-hmm. they did consider... Uh, underage to be what age 22 and under like that was a little bit surprising to read where where was that mm-hmm. and i i feel like the recruiting aspect they're definitely trying to instill fears of, like they're trying to recruit because it's like if if you can turn someone gay quote unquote of course you're trying to recruit them but it's like you know yeah <laughs> no it yeah. it um yeah no so uh, you have those fears about like recruiting people yeah. into being gay those exist um, on both sides of the border. In- well, and in the rest of the world, too. This is not right, restricted right. No. to Germany. And that's that's another thing I wanted to get into is like, how does this, how does the legal and social attitudes and apparatus in Germany compare with the rest of the world as, you know, the 60s are going on and things are going on elsewhere other than Germany, too? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really good question. That was something that um, I you know, really wanted, or I, I was thinking about a lot when I was doing this research and writing this book. Uh, so what's happening in West Germany in particular is not that dissimilar from what's going on in other Western countries. In the 1950s, you have a, a sort of wave of homophobia. Uh, and so in the U.S., this takes the form of the Lavender Scare, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, um, Senator McCarthy not only was going after communists, but was also going after gay men and lesbians who worked in the federal government. And you have this long going purge of queer federal employees. And, and that's known as the Lavender Scare in um, various countries that had decriminalized homosexuality, their efforts to recriminalize it. There's in places like France that that uh, didn't criminalize homosexuality, there are new laws um, against things like solicitation that uh, are used to harass uh, queer people. In the UK, you actually have a very similar law to the Nazi one um, that also bans um, most sort of sexual acts between men, even if there isn't penetration. Um, There too, you have a ramp up in, in prosecutions under that law after World War II. So you do have this general wave of increased persecution after World War II. And West Germany is very much in line with that. I think what sort of makes it a bit different is this Nazi context that not only is it sort of going along with the pack in terms of what Western nations are doing, but it is still using a Nazi era law. It's still using Nazi era language to justify what it's doing and to describe what it's doing. And so this is a further piece of evidence that Germany, West Germany, didn't really fully denazify, um, certainly not in the 1950s and and not for quite some time after World War II. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
and in East Germany, you have a much more muddled picture, as, as I hope I'm getting across, that you have some legal reform. You have, uh, in a lot of ways, things looking better for queer people. At the same time, you do have elements of persecution. You have elements of stigma. Um, and so it doesn't quite look like any other case. Uh, the USSR, for instance, had recriminalized homosexuality under Stalin in the 1930s. Uh, and we don't have precise figures there, but estimates are that thousands of men, of gay men, went to the gulags. Um, and interestingly, after Stalin died, you don't really see much of a let up in that persecution, that uh, gay men continue to be persecuted and stigmatized in the Soviet Union. So, um, it's interesting that in a lot of ways, East Germany breaks with the Soviet Union when it comes to regulating sexuality. Yeah, and you describe it as being uh, not out as like, like people are able to like kind of live, but it's not as out in the open maybe as West Germany. Yeah. Else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think especially by like the end of the 1960s, um, you have this situation where in a lot of ways, Legally, the situation is better in East Germany, but because West Germany is this consumerist capitalist place, you have a, a better subculture, a better commercial subculture for queer people. You have more bars. Uh, once homosexuality, once adult homosexuality is decriminalized in 1969 in West Germany, you have sex clubs and magazines and um, you just have a lot more opportunities. And so that's a sort of duality that I found kept cropping up was that in some ways, when it came to policy, uh, East Germany might look better, but then in other ways, when it came to um, sort of commercial experiences or culture, West Germany might look better. Uh, and so that's, I mean, that's actually where I got the idea for the title of the book, States of Liberation, that you can't really describe gay liberation as just one thing or one project. It's something that takes place on all these different planes. It happens in idiosyncratic and inconsistent ways. And so by the end of the 1980s, you have uh, sort of two things that look like liberation in East and West Germany, but they look very different from each other. Mm -hmm. But um, a lot of these public places like the uh, gay bars are kind of like magnets for getting busted so it's yeah. like it's like this understanding that these places get to exist but i don't know if i was a gay man in west germany i wouldn't necessarily want to go right there. right <laughs> you know it's like it's it seems, true it seems too good to be true it's like okay i can go in here and nope yeah. <laughs> no and uh, that's completely true they're they're absolutely magnets and, and in fact in the 1950s and 1960s when it's when this is still illegal um there are records of um police essentially saying we actually should allow some of these bars to exist because mm. you know they're convenient for keeping an eye on these people they're con you know they're, it's a convenient place to raid and and sort of round them up uh so no i mean it, it, there's definitely a sort of sinister sinister side to it especially in the 1950s and 1960s and and the raids though even after homosexuality is decriminalized. So once we get to the 1970s and you start having this more robust 
commercial subculture, you have uh, new radical gay liberation groups, you still have raids on bars. Mm. I mean, this was uh, a quite shocking thing to me was just the frequency with which police continued to raid these bars in in West Germany. And that, you know, they might say, oh, it's we're checking for prostitutes, or we're looking for underage people. Um, but uh, it, it certainly made life harder uh, for mm-hmm. queer people in West Germany. Yeah, definitely. Um, but how do things progress as the years go on here? Um, yeah, past the sixties, like like we're we're moving towards the end of the Cold War. What's what's going on there? I mean, yeah, no, it's again a sort of surprising set of developments. I mean, probably what will sound most familiar to American viewers is what happens in West Germany in the seventies. So, in the U.S., of course, we have the Stonewall riots in 1969, mm-hmm. and this leads to a new generation of gay liberation activists. And this is sort of what we associate with, um, you know, or as sort of the origins of today's gay and lesbian rights movement. And so in West Germany, uh, you have paragraph 175 is reformed in 1969. And a couple of years later, this director named Rosa von Braunheim uh, releases a film called It is Not the Homosexual Who is Perverse, but rather the Situation in Which He Lives, which is a mouthful. Um, and it's sort of a campy, judgy movie. It's about the gay subculture, and it, it sort of Um, It has a very strong political message, basically, that uh, gay men need to stop being so obsessed with sex and and obsessed with going to, you know, bars and so forth to look for sex and rather forge political solidarity with one another. And this film, it's a huge, uh, I don't know if hits the right word, but it, it sparks a huge national conversation and it leads to all these gay rights groups, all these gay liberation groups getting founded across West Germany. Mm. And they spend the 1970s fighting for greater visibility, um, for, uh, you know, various political and policy outcomes, like getting rid of employment blacklists for queer people, um, Mm. getting reparations for victims of Nazism. Um, At the time, paragraph 175 was still on the books and it set a higher age of consent. Um, So for most of of the 1970s, um, gay men had an age of consent of 18, which was considerably higher than for, uh, for straight people. Mm-hmm. So, so this is what they're fighting for. And, and they actually, you know, get a lot of traction and, and a lot of visibility over the 1970s. But by the end of the decade, they have this, um, they, they sort of have a period of decline and they, they see themselves as more of being a failure. They fail to actually enact any change at the federal level, at the national level in terms of policy. And so the 1980s, so the, the 1970s are quite similar in a lot of ways to what's going on in the US or in other Western countries. But by the 1980s, you have a movement that's in some ways much more timid politically and has reoriented itself to sort of social and cultural activism. Um, But what's really interesting about the 1980s is, of course, um, that Germany, West Germany, like, uh, like the U.S., is confronted with the AIDS crisis. And in the U.S., infamously, Reagan refused to even say the word AIDS for years Mm -hmm. after it had become a crisis here. Uh, In West Germany, sort of shockingly, the center-right government, the Christian Democratic Union, is in power, and their government actually pursues a very pragmatic course of action 
to try and confront the disease and stop it in its tracks. And they're actually quite successful. They work with these uh, gay and lesbian activists to spread awareness about the disease, awareness about safer sex and so on. Um, and they do succeed over the course of the decade in really bringing down infection rates. The sort of perverse outcome of that is that in the US, you have as a result of the government's inaction, a newly sort of politicized movement. You think of groups like ACT UP New York um, mm-hmm. that spearhead or, or sort of you know create all these new forms of direct action and engagement with the government. And it creates a new sense of urgency for gay and lesbian rights. And you don't really have that in, uh, in West Germany because the government is actually so responsive to the needs of its queer citizens. So you have this very sort of Uh, ambivalent or ambiguous 1980s, where you don't have a robust political movement, but you have a lot of gain on medical issues, on cultural issues, on social issues. And what I found then is that in East Germany, things are basically the opposite. You have gay liberation activists that start organizing in East Berlin in the 1970s, and they're confronted with the East German secret police or the Stasi, which was the largest secret police force per capita in world history. Um, It's an absolutely massive police force. Um, Estimates are that around 5% of the East German population worked for the the Stasi at some point or another. And so, you know, they're confronted by this paranoid surveillance state that immediately sees what they're trying to do as oppositional in nature. So, so these early activists in East Germany in the 1970s, they're just trying to get a place to sort of hang out, to congregate um, with other queer people. And the state, the, the Stasi immediately sort of interprets this as threatening to the regime. And so there's this antagonism between the two Um, in the 1970s, and ultimately the secret police shuts the group down. But uh, so so by at the end of the 70s, you have this activism that looks like it has sort of failed in East Germany, whereas it's had a lot of successes in West Germany in sort of changing the culture and society. It sort of that that dynamic sort of reverses in the 1980s. In East Germany, these activists start organizing under the umbrella of the Protestant church, which might sound surprising, especially to us in the US where we're sort of used to thinking of queerness and religion as diametrically opposed to each other. Um, Now, of course, that's not actually the case. It's never been the case. And in East Germany, um, the Protestant church was the only sort of nominally independent organization in the entire country. Again, it's this communist dictatorship. It's, um, as a socialist state, it's very much opposed to organized religion, but because the church was such a massive presence in East German society and East German life, they couldn't just get rid of it. They couldn't just abolish it. And so over the course of East Germany's existence, they really try and sort of chip away at the church's influence. But even by the 1980s, it's still a very prominent element of East German society. Um, Angela Merkel, for instance, who uh, the former chancellor who uh, is from, was, grew up in East Germany. She was a pastor's daughter. Um, mm. Anyway, so, so the Protestant church is, is nominally independent, and this enables these sort of um, 
groups like these gay and lesbian activists to actually organize uh, under its umbrella. And you have other political movements like uh, peace movement, environmentalist movements that also organize under the Protestant church's umbrella. Hmm. And so over the course of the 1980s, this movement sort of picks up steam. It, new groups organize themselves in various East German cities. And this really terrifies the regime. It terrifies the Stasi. And so by the end of the decade, or not, excuse me, not by the end of the decade, by the middle of the decade, they realize that their sort of strategy of just trying to repress these groups isn't working and that they need a new strategy. They need, they need a new tactic. And so what they decide to do is essentially give in to these groups' demands. They figure, well, if we enact all these policies that they're asking for, these groups won't have any cause to exist and they'll sort of just simply dissolve. And so what you have between about 1985 and 1989, when the Berlin Wall falls, is this slew of pro-gay policymaking in East Germany. You have um, equalization of the age of consent, you have a new directive to allow queer people to serve in the army. You have um, the regime relaxing censorship around issues of, of homosexuality. Um, they make an effort to work with these activist groups to, um, to fight AIDS and HIV in East Germany. Uh, and the list sort of goes on and on. It's, it's quite a remarkable um, sort of 180 that the regime does in these years. And so by the end of the decade, whereas you have this sort of somewhat marginalized and dejected gay and lesbian movement in West Germany, you have this incredibly energized and effective movement in East Germany under this communist dictatorship. So again, to me, when I found all of this evidence in the archives, it was completely counterintuitive and not at all what I had expected going in with a sense of East Germany as a sort of repressive Cold War communist dictatorship. Mm. Well, uh, just going back a little bit, talk a little bit about the research you did for mm -hmm. this, because you seem like you went pretty deep into the archives of arrest records and kind of the nitty gritty of it. Talk a little bit about because I mean some of these things it's like you, you don't know how some of these things ended and you know like it's mm -hmm, just like mm -hmm. the record cuts off <laughs> yeah <I don't> know. <laughs> yeah no no exactly I mean so I went to 10 different archives for this research and then I also interviewed um, more than 20 people who had lived through um, through the Cold War era mm. and so I um, you know that probably the the biggest archive or the most important archive for me was were the, the archives of the Stasi, of the East German secret police. And I got really lucky uh, in going there when I first started doing research uh, for this project there. I had told the archivists what I was working on and they just plopped down a binder uh, with several hundred sheets in it. And these sheets just contained a list of all of the different files that were tagged with homosexuality in the Stasi archives, you know, kilometers worth of files. And they just said, put a check mark next to everyone that you want to look at. And so I spent the better part of a year just going through all these files, um, you know, surveillance documents, memoranda. And it gave me this incredible insight, both into how the East German regime was thinking about homosexuality. And because these are essentially 
um, surveillance records of everyday life. It gave me a really rich look into how queer people were actually living in East Germany um, across the Cold War period. I also went to various police archives and regional art and in in, um, in in various cities around uh, East Germany, or excuse me, well, East Germany and, and West Germany. Um, and these also offer really rich and detailed information um, about everyday life, about queer everyday life. The sort of caveat there is that these records, these police records only exist when someone was arrested or picked up by the police. And so it does give you a somewhat biased view into, into what this life was like. Um, there's also a really wonderful uh, gay archive in Berlin uh, that had a lot of records of these activist organizations. And then probably the, the richest and most fascinating sources were the, the interviews that I carried out with individuals who had lived through this um, period. I got to speak with former activists in both East and West Germany. I spoke to ordinary people who hadn't been active in the movement, but had suffered persecution in the 50s or 60s. Um, and one of the most remarkable interviews was with the former prime minister of East Germany, the only freely elected uh, prime minister. He was not um, a gay man himself, but he had friends who were, and as a lawyer, was um, sort of on hand to offer legal advice to East German activists. And so he had incredible sort of commentary on the movement and daily life, and then also how the successes of the gay and lesbian movement in East Germany had carried on into Germany after reunification, after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mm -hmm. But uh, what do you see as the future of uh, this movement in Germany? Is Germany going to be, I mean, it seems like Germany is kind of a leader now as, you know, it, to, to me, it seemed very open when I was there <laughs> 10 years yeah. ago or so, but uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think right now it it is in many ways a leader. Um, it, you know, it's especially its larger cities are incredibly tolerant places for queer people. Um, it has made efforts, you know, to improve care now for trans people to make it um, easier for people to um, transition. Um, so yeah, and in a lot of ways, it's a leader. I mean, there are these sort of curious moments still. So for instance, uh, when I was living in Berlin, um, Germany actually legalized marriage equality. And it was sort of a strange thing that it hadn't already done it. There was huge public support, but because um, Angela Merkel's party was in power in those years, the Christian Democratic Union, and they were largely opposed to marriage equality. It, it simply hadn't happened. And mm. in fact, Angela Merkel, who, you know, in many ways has a sort of excellent reputation among Americans um, and is seen as, you know, I mean, I think at various points she had been called the, the leader of the free world. She actually voted against um, the bill to enact marriage equality. Mm. So, uh, so no, in, in a lot of ways it is a leader, but you still have, I think, some of these resonances of skepticism or stigma. Um, you certainly don't have anything I would think of as persecution at the moment. Um, and I don't see that necessarily changing anytime in the near future. That said, though, I think um, anyone who studies queer history 
can see how quickly these things can turn, um, especially if you look at how queer people were living in Germany in the 1920s and how quickly that changed when the Nazis came to power in 1933. Mm. Um, so I, I guess I'm optimistic, but um, that optimism is always tempered by how I understand the history. Sure. Well, it always happens when you study history, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it can always get worse. <laughs> it certainly can always get worse. <laughs> um, well, yeah, definitely. Well, um, yeah, what, what year was that that uh, that happened in Germany that it became legal marriage? Uh, in in uh, 2017. 2017. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was only a couple of years. What was it? 2014 with yeah yeah no, it, it wasn't that long wasn't and, that long and no. i remember hillary and uh barack at various times were against uh it. yep mm-hmm. both came around so yeah it was it was very fast it was amazing i remember i was working at a newspaper and i did stories about these you know mm-hmm. gay and lesbian couples want to get married and they can't and it's affecting their lives and I, it was like a human interest story and it's like now i can't even imagine like doing a story like that it seems like ancient history but i did that not that long ago right no i i mean i yeah i was in school when all yeah. of this was happening it um no it it it, it really wasn't that long ago and mm-hmm. um you know it's it's very I think hopeful. I think this. St- I mean, one nice thing about this history is that it does give you a lot of cause for optimism and and for hope. But I think there's always sort of that nagging voice in the back of your head saying, "Well, things could always get worse again." Oh yeah, definitely. Well, but it seemed like it was just being held up for so long, and then it all kind of came tumbling down very quickly. And then it was like yep. it was no big deal. Nobody even. I can't even imagine the last time you. It, someone that was opposed to it even then brings it up now it never comes up you know since it's happened you know what I mean? yeah no it 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 doesn't although you then have um you know in the u.s you have i think efforts to not necessarily attack marriage equality but to go back to i mean they might they might but but i think you know they they think it's easier to attack um i mean i'm thinking specifically of this uh, law that is working its way through the Florida legislature right now mm-hmm. um, that would, uh, you know, essentially make it illegal or very difficult for teachers to talk about anything to do with sexuality or, or queerness. Right. Um, and, you know, that picks up on these same tropes that you see in Germany in the Nazi period and in West Germany and East Germany about um, sort of seduction and about, you know, this, this, sort of um, stereotype that queer people are all so, somehow predators, um, which mm-hmm. is, of course, you know, is is nothing more than sort of homophobia, but um, it somehow is this, this homophobic myth that refuses to die. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just an easy way to smear people and discredit yeah. them. And, you know, it's, it's always, like you said, it's been a trope since time immemorial. You know, it's like people <laughs> yep. trying to fuse the two together. Um, but yeah, yeah, but, but it goes back to the idea that you could recruit somebody, somebody's a perfectly straight person. And then it's like, oh my gosh, I came into contact with what's going on. Like, yep, yep. <laughs> <wait a minute. laughs> it's that, it's, that's the idea. And, and maybe they believe their own, you know, propaganda on that issue. You know what I mean? They actually think it could happen, but like, yeah, it's like, it's all predicated on that idea, you know, and it's, it's obviously yeah. ridiculous, but, uh, Yeah. 
So. No, that's that's exactly what it is. And yeah. um, anyway, so I, I, you know, I do look at things that are happening here um, or in places like Russia, mm. uh, and you know, <laughs> think well, uh, it's happening there, or or sure. it's happening here, right? And it um, it could happen anywhere. Oh yeah, absolutely, definitely. Well, on that cheery note, um, right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, thank you again for taking all this time uh, this evening. I, I really do appreciate it. It's a very interesting book. I'm, I'm right in the middle of it. So yeah, I'm, I'm very interested to, to finish it out. But uh, one last question I do ask mm-hmm. before uh, we go, what music have you been listening to lately? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I listen to a lot of more classical music. And so I've been listening to Philip Glass's opera, Akhenaten. Mm. Um, about the the pharaoh who was the husband of of nefertiti the Mm. um so it's for anyone any one of your listeners who likes opera i highly recommend it interesting yeah no my son has been studying egypt ancient egypt so yeah we've been learning all about nefertiti and Mm -hmm. they never found uh, her tomb i don't believe there's a thing about her that Maybe right. I actually have a colleague who is an expert on Nefertiti, so I wow. have to yeah. ask her next time I see her. Well, then there's Nefertari too, but that's different. Um, ah. But then there's also uh, that bust, that famous bust of Nefertiti. I, I yes, think that's Nefertiti, which is right. Yeah, and it actually is in Berlin. It's mm. one of my favorite museums to go to when I'm there. What is the museum? It's called the um, uh, the new museum. So you have, um, and it isn't actually that new. It, it was built in the 19th century, but Ah, there was the old museum and then the new museum. (laughs) Um, So yeah, but it it contains one of the collections of of ancient art and Egyptian art there. Yeah. I went to the, um, German national museum in Nuremberg. Um, Oh yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was interesting because they had old timey, like, uh, you know, fifth century, like bear gods and like the animal mm-hmm. like, worship. Mm-hmm. And they had uh, some amazing uh, armor there. It was it was pretty cool, too. But uh, yeah, I'd love to go yeah. back to Germany. It was really cool. It's it's an amazing country. I yeah. yeah. If you get a chance, you should go see the bust of Nefertiti. <laughs> well, <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> well, great. Well, hey, everyone should check out your book. Uh, I definitely, I'm finding it very interesting, like I said. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to have you back anytime. This is great. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. So Cool. Well, have a good night. I appreciate it. You too. Right, Bye. Bye-bye.
Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, RSS, and now Spotify. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. If you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Also, if you want to call or text the show for any reason, the number is 317-674-3547. Until next time.